This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Play-by-play cast back at it here on a Friday morning. Welcome back into the program, everybody. My name is Joel Godette. That was the voice of Sean Sullivan, our trusty voice guy. And the music, a uh, little little marshmallow. Marshmallow. Not not mallow, it's just mellow. Apparently what the kids are listening to these days. Uh, marshmallow remix and Adele there, if you're curious what the song is. It's, uh, it's Hello by Adele. Probably didn't see that one coming. Welcome back into the podcast, though. Uh, would love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to us. As always, you can find us on Twitter at PXPCast, or you can find me on Twitter at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. As I uh, record this week's podcast, I'm sitting here watching the top of the seventh inning between the Chicago Cubs and the Los Angeles Dodgers. It is 3-1 Cubbies, although they are threatening here with Javi Baez at the plate. So uh, if you're listening to this podcast on Friday, uh, you know the result of this game. Uh, don't ruin it for me. I'm watching it here, trying to find it out in real time. Anyway, John Sadak is our guest today. And uh, John is a guy that does a lot of stuff and does a lot of stuff really well. And a guy I've known for several years and excited to, to talk to on the podcast here um, and kind of pick his brain and, and get some knowledge. Uh, John, if you listen to Westwood One's NFL coverage, has a voice you've probably heard before. Uh, John has a voice that you've probably heard before if you listen to Westwood One's coverage of the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament, uh, if you've listened to the Women's Final Four, uh, if you've listened to Army-Navy, if you're from Northeast Pennsylvania and you enjoy AAA baseball, uh, you've probably heard John Zadak before. He's been the, the voice of the scranton Wilkesboro Rail Riders for the last couple of years. And before that, the voice of uh, the Wilmington Blue Rocks uh, with their mascot, Mr. Celery, and uh, the Delaware Blue Hens and the Princeton Tigers and a whole lot of entities in uh, the northeastern United States, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania areas. Uh, John's a very talented guy. And a very gracious guy, awesome person, uh, who spent about an hour on the podcast you're going to hear here. And then John and I spent probably, I think, like another hour on the phone just talking. Uh, So more than grateful for his time and his insight here um, this week and on this episode. Uh, We start this podcast and we touch on a lot of different stuff from, I mean, finding your niche and latching on with different opportunities and banging down doors and uh, the physical play-by-play nature, uh, you know, refining your craft and all that stuff. Uh, but where we started with John is where we've started with so many other people. But as continues to be the case on this podcast, everybody has their very own unique story and non-duplicatable story. Duplicatable? Duplicable? Repeatable? Story. Uh, John is a guy that... Uh, did not initially want to be a sports broadcaster. He wanted to do something very, very different when he was growing up from sports broadcasting, and one way or another actually led him to 
the sports broadcasting path. That is where we start with John Sadak. Uh, this is uh, it's a unique take, and uh, I'm I'm glad we uh, got to dive into it and start there, and then uh, let the conversation blossom. But John Sadak of Westwood One of the Scranton Wilkesboro Rail Riders, uh, CBS Sports Network. He's done work with ESPN, um, but I think probably most known nationally for a Westwood One. John Sadak here on Play by Playcast. I would say I would probably go back to my initial interest in it. Uh, I, I was a wannabe athlete that realized very early on that I would never be that. So my inner nerd overwhelmed and I really wanted to be a scientist or a mathematician. Uh, my only varsity letter in high school was on the math team and I loved physics. I loved astronomy. Uh, my, my plans were to be an astrophysicist. Hang on, That's is that, what I sent out to all the... Is that a line or did you actually get a varsity letter for that? No, I did. Yeah, there were oh. varsity letters <laughs> for math team. No jacket, but I did get a letter. That's legit. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, a JV hockey... <laughs> uh, I was in theater, and I had a varsity letter from the math team. That was my uh, my college uh, application supplementary material. <laughs> uh, okay, but astrophysicist, and, is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, but the, the more I looked into it, uh, you wouldn't get to do the fun, nerdy stuff that I would like. I love the idea of research. I love the idea of being on a high-powered telescope. I love the idea of theorizing. But the reality is you spend most of your time soliciting for funding for research, basically sales, which I have no interest in doing, or teaching, which I didn't quite feel fit for at the time. Plus, I'd have to get a terminal degree. So you do all this schooling. You're in school until you're in your late 20s. You come out with mountains of debt, even with some form of scholarship help. And then the salary was good, but not great. And I said, I don't think that's for me. I, while I'd like the activity, I don't like all the extra surrounding detail. And I was uh, a little worried. What would I decide to do? I was pretty driven for most of my childhood. This was my senior year of high school. I decided I don't want to go down this path anymore. And in my AP history class, I was doing research for a project on uh, comparing race relation in sport and American society in 20th century America. And the, the central tenets of it were, did race relation and sport influence society or vice versa? And of course, the actual answer is they're both entirely intertwined. There is no one that supersedes the other. Sure. But in my research for it, uh, the Sports Illustrated, Arthur Ashe on the cover, Sportsman of the Year, 92. Uh, this was four years earlier than my research assignment. In that SI, that article that became the, the central thrust of my presentation, there was also a giant spread on what was becoming a major pop culture phenomenon of SportsCenter. And it, it delved into every job that SportsCenter had, all the way down to production assistants, you know, the lowest rung on the totem pole. And I started reading the sidebar piece on the life of a PA, making no money, working horrendous <laughs> hours, doing all the crap that nobody else wanted to do. And that's when it crystallized and it became tangible and real. And I said, I can do that job. I could work for no money for 100 hours a week. And if I get in through there, then I can maybe move up. And, uh, and I had fallen in love with the Sports Center anchor. I didn't want to do games. I wanted to be an anchor. I thought they were funny and hip and smart. And they, they were able to fuse you know, real-world 
big picture things with sport in a really unique way. Uh, and back then, in the infancy of the internet, this is '96. I was able to find the email addresses of most of the sports center anchors, and I wrote a lot of them, and many of them wrote back. You know, guys like Steve Levy and Charlie Steiner and Bob Lee, and they would give me their tale. This is how I did it. This is the path that I took. And it was then that I decided to major in broadcasting, essentially. Uh, I went to a state school in South Jersey, and when I started there, I wanted to be a sports center anchor, but then I did anchor work, and I found it uh, not as fulfilling as I thought it would be. It became too scripted. I was too detached. I, I wasn't as engaged. And then I did a game, and I said, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. Like, the game is where it was. That's where the energy is. That's where it's vibrant. And that's in many ways where you're tested. And you know, when you're in a studio, you know what's going to happen. So you can write eight different versions and script it and time it out and the game truly challenges you because in the moment live, you have to react. In that instant, you have to improvise. And that's it. Whatever you say is out there. It's, it's in the ether. It's, it's forever. And that was really appealing to me. That's where I, I got the, the joy, the, the, the thrill of live event sportscasting. So, yeah, when I finished my schooling, I applied to be the initial Lakewood Blue Claws announcer. And in my you know, ridiculous arrogance of being a student broadcaster, where we all think that we're great and the truth is we're terrible, uh, I, of course, did not get it, as I shouldn't have. Uh, but I kept in touch with those guys. I did a graduate thesis on PR in minor league baseball, specifically A-ball, with the notion that when I was done, I would use some of those contacts that I made through surveying everybody in A-ball to get a job. And it worked. Uh, I, I wound up as a producer for the Lakewood Blue Claws. At the same time, I was a, a freelance logger for Major League Baseball Productions working at Yankee Stadium. I left to go to a Division II conference office as an SID. The faculty athletic rep at my Division III alma mater had met the recently christened new commissioner at the SIAC, which at the time was based in the greater Atlanta area. I interviewed, I got that job. It was supposed to include some broadcasting that never quite materialized. So after about six months, and I realized I wasn't going to be on the air, I started on the hunt again, and the Wilmington Blue Rocks, the other major source for my graduate thesis, had an opening for a number two announcer. And uh, I put in for it. I wound up uh, getting that job. I actually interviewed for the Blue Rocks number two job in the morning drove to Lakewood, and that afternoon interviewed for their lead job, which at that point I was a finalist for. That was after Neil, Neil Solon's left to go to Durham, AAA. And I did not get the Lakewood job, but I got the Wilmington job, and I started that in 2004. Um, and from there, it just kind of grew. It just turned from one thing into another. You know, the, the Blue Rock job led to doing University of Delaware basketball, uh, by coincidence, a guy named Ed Bankin, who's the beat reporter for yeah. the Phillies at WYP, uh, he also went to my college 10 years before I did. He called me days before the basketball season started. His friend was supposed to be the women's basketball announcer at Princeton, and his independent business had gone under, and he was advised not to take the job because it would affect the tax sheltering of the collapse of his business could I do a few Princeton games? So I did, and they liked it, and the schedules meshed. 
So I wound up doing two Division One basketball jobs concurrently that I did for eight years. I worked both Princeton and Delaware. Uh, the Ivy was Friday, Saturday. The CAA was Thursday, Sunday. And it was a lot of driving up and down the East Coast and the greater New England, New York metro down to the Virginias and Carolinas. Um, I wound up going back to the Yankees, this time as a Yankee employee, not Major League Baseball. I met a guy named Mike Bonner, who was their director of broadcasting and scoreboard. I helped him out some when I was with Major League Baseball. He liked me, wanted to create a job for me. The day I go in for the interview for that job, it turns out his assistant director had been turned over the day before, and he offered me an even better job as the assistant director of broadcasting for the Yankees, uh, which was more behind the scenes. It was assigning booth space, parking power of production trucks, camera positions for every rights holder. So home and visiting, TV, radio, English and Spanish, and ESPN, Fox, all the national rights holders. Uh, and that was really cool. I grew up a big Yankee fan. I got to meet a lot of these announcers and directors and producers. Uh, and it was a great learning ground for how on the, the more production behind the scenes side, a lot of it worked, but I still wanted to be on the air. And that next season, my predecessor with the blue rocks left to go to XM satellite radio. And they called me and asked if I would be interested in the job. And I took it. And, uh, and that kind of set me on the path to grabbing more and more freelance things here and there. Was there any hesitation in that, in, in saying, well, I'm with the Yankees, I'm not on air, but I'm with the New York Yankees, uh, let me pursue this and see how this goes and stay at the major league level uh, versus let me take the steps back to go to A-ball, but I'm, le- but I'm on the air. I'm doing truly what I want to do, but I'm a little bit recessed. Uh, was that an internal battle or was that just an obvious, let me go call games? No, that was obvious. I, I, and I told the Yankees that when I interviewed for the job, that broadcasting was my passion. I wanted to announce games. I needed to keep the announcing gigs that I was already doing, the Princeton and Delaware basketball jobs on the side. I wanted to add more, which I did. I did some Division II football with the Northeast 10 Conference uh, while I was with the Yankees. And shortly before the Blue Rocks position had opened, I, I was a finalist for the Georgia Southern job that went to Chris Blair, mm. uh, who's an immense talent, very good. He's now the voice at LSU. Uh, it was down to me and him and uh, Brian Giffen, who was the Butler football guy and uh, Indianapolis Indians baseball man. He's now with the Braves a ball in the behind-the-scenes role. Yes. <laughs> Cardinal Pride. Bring yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, there was, there was no doubt at all. I, I knew I wanted to be on the air. I knew the only way I'd get better at being on the air is by doing it. And, and I also knew that if I stayed in New York – there was zero chance of me transitioning from my existing role into a major league announced role. That was not going to happen. So while I could perhaps broaden the depth of my relationship with some decision makers, clock was ticking and I needed to be on the air. And to be honest, I really said to myself, honestly, at the time that if I got even an eight ball gig and that was the highest I ever got, in many ways, I'd be satisfied because if you were to go back in time and tell the 17-year-old version of me, hey, you'd get to work for the New York Yankees, you'd work for Major League Baseball, and you'd be paid to be a play-by-play announcer of multiple sports, but this is your ceiling, would you take it? I probably would have said yes. And the innate human condition is we normalize to everything and then we want more, and that's good. That's what drives us. That's what makes us better. That's what helps us achieve. 
but but there's a lot of truth to that. If if I knew that I could get at definitively at age 17, I, I assuredly would have said yes. What did you get maybe from being in that role with the Yankees, though, that you think you wouldn't have had otherwise, just as knowledge, exposure, anything? What came from that that, uh, that benefited you that year? Uh, I would say the biggest thing, several things benefited from that. I, I grew up a big Yankee fan. Uh, and then I, I worked at the place where I had fandom. And I think that helped me separate fandom from work in many ways, because uh, you have to do that. You won't be able to function if you're walking around in constant awe like a fan. And I think that was a great indoctrination to that. Um, I, I think it taught me the, the, the drive that you need to have to be successful is going to be tested on a daily basis and working a major league schedule, that volume of games uh, while also working 60 some basketball games on an annual basis. Uh, that was a good test for me and for my family and for the relationships that I had at the time. Uh, yeah. There, there's a lot of truth to the, the notions of the, the stress that sports broadcasting can have on many personal relationships and friendships because every time everybody else is hanging out, you're working. Oh, it's Christmas. I'm working. So Saturday you're having a party. I'm working. It's your birthday. Well, again, I'm going to miss the party because I'm working. And, and, and that's difficult to get adjusted to. And that, that allowed me to do that. Um, and, and I also think that was the 2005 season for the Yankees. They were they were good. They were a playoff team that year. They had some major moments. Uh, you know, a Rod had his his giant night against the Angels on Wednesday Night Baseball that late April when he challenged the RBI record. Being in a stadium that was full of that much energy and history was sobering, and it was good to get used to that. Being there every day didn't make it as goosebump-inducing, which in a way, you want to retain some of that, but you don't want it to overwhelm. And then later, when I worked on bigger games or in larger venues, granted with the Yankees I wasn't on the air, but I'd been through a lot of experiences like that while working at that event. And that helped me to separate and compartmentalize and just look at the events on the field independent of all the other distraction around it. The climb for you being in that area, I mean, for really the the entirety of your career as well, I, I think is interesting. And even look back at recent guests we've had on. I mean, you and I both know Tooch and, and Lays, um, who have taken two very different paths. You know, John's gone and has worked in 10 states at all levels. And, and you know, Tooch is a guy that has been a kind of tri-state area guy and worked for a lot of organizations and bounced up through them all. Um, what was it like for you starting in Wilmington and really I mean, how long were you in Wilmington for? I was there as an intern in 2004 and I was there as a lead guy from 06 through 2012. Being, I mean, being there for that long and having a foothold there and, and having a place to grow uh, and then having the Delaware stuff and having the Princeton stuff. Uh, was there an itch for you to look elsewhere and, 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 and move anywhere or was it one of those things where you were happy and comfortable in that area and and you're looking for stuff in that area and uh, walk me on the progression of your career uh, along those lines and and how uh, how that part of it all unfolded I guess geographically 
I, I would say both. I, I wanted to stay in that general area because I was from not that far away. That was one of the major uh, positive aspects of it for me. You know, my family was only an hour and a half drive away. My college friends were 45 minutes away. Uh, I had family in the greater Delaware area that I stayed with when I first interned. Um, so there were a lot of positives to being in a place familiar where there were friends and family. At the same time, I applied to everything, everything. I mean, when I got out of, out of college, I was applying to junior hockey jobs in North Dakota. I applied for countless Division two and three jobs. And for a while, I used to keep a stack of all the rejection letters. And, and there are hundreds of rejection letters or emails that I would print hard copies out and put in the pile. And I, I kept them at one point all in an accordion folder, uh, alphabetized by the places that had said, no thanks, not interested over time. And it, it was a form of inspiration for me. Every rejection was that much closer to another yes. And each rejection kind of taught me how to better market myself, how to improve my skills, and what places were looking for, and, and to a certain extent, what I was looking for. Uh, but I applied for a number of jobs. And heck, at one point, I became disenchanted to a certain extent with my chances in the industry. And I, I had met somebody. Uh, I was falling in love. Uh, I wasn't really progressing for a couple of years the way I wanted to. And I had a phone interview to be a student media advisor at Villanova University. And their sticking point turned out to be one that other potential employers would have later. I didn't want to abandon it entirely. I still wanted to retain at least one of my basketball jobs, ideally both, but I would give up one if I had to. Uh, and I thought it was a great selling point. I'd be advising your students while still working in the field. And they did not see it that way. Uh, they said, <laughs> nope, if you were to do this job, you can only do this job. I said, even on a weekend that uh, don't have anything to do, yep, not, you'd have to do this job. And so it never moved further. Uh, I had the same thing happen with multiple AAA opportunities. Hmm. Uh, Wilmington was a great market. It's a top 75 market. You're right outside of Philadelphia. You're only an hour from Baltimore. You're two hours from New York and D.C. You have a lot of opportunities from there. They treat their broadcaster incredibly well. I made competitive money for that level. I was salaried in full time, and they afforded me the ability to work these other freelance gigs. Uh, there are very few places that give you that combination. I also felt, while I love baseball, and doing Major League Baseball would, in my mind, be the ultimate test of me as an announcer, I wasn't beholden to baseball. So the notion of moving up within the baseball confine and abandoning everything else wasn't that appealing to me. Uh, so when I, I had late-stage progress with three separate AAA opportunities, one an in-person interview at the winter meetings, one a phone interview when I was one of the last eight, and another where I was one of the last ten and was contacted email-wise by the team, all of them expressed a raised eyebrow at the volume of other stuff that I did, which had grown to some other entities as well on the side by those respective points. And my response was, uh, I think, a fairly American capitalistic one. If you want to own me as an announcer and tell me, declare that I cannot work for anybody else at all and limit my income potential, limit my career advancement opportunity, I'm open to it. Everything's negotiable. you got to pay me. <laughs> and 
you got to give me some security of multiple years in a contract. And that just doesn't happen in minor league baseball. I knew what their response would be, but that's what my response was. I'm not going to give up on everything to put all my eggs in one basket of this one baseball job, especially because, as I'm sure you've seen, and I'm sure many guests have and will continue to talk about on this podcast, the baseball progression of going up levels like a player and graduating to the big leagues, it can still happen. It does still happen, but it's not the path anymore. There are many other paths that I would argue mathematically give you better odds and none of them give you good odds because only a very select few of us are ever going to have that opportunity. Mm. The pure math is just not good. So with that in mind, why give all that other stuff up? And over time, that meant more years in Wilmington. But to me, that was fine because I was still getting better. I was still trying to challenge myself every night and create a great broadcast. I had some outstanding partners. I had an incredibly supportive front office with a lot of people that are still very close friends of mine. And I was able to do a number of other things on the side that in other areas of the country that don't have the same media market presence as not too distant Philly, New York, Baltimore, D.C., I probably wouldn't have had those chances. What's it like being where you were at, though? And I only say this, you know, personally, uh, I'm in Indianapolis, although I'm north of Indianapolis. I'm, I'm the, if you're in Indy, I'm the Ball State guy, so to speak. Or if somebody else is anywhere else in the country where they're in a market. Um, and I know you had talked about, you know, different connections you had made that led to Udell and that lead to Princeton and that lead to, you know, things on down the line. Uh, how do you, how did you, and, and I guess how do you, continue to grow a, a foothold in an area and create those kinds of opportunities for yourself. Um, I guess creating a bigger brand, I guess would be the, 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 the hip way to say that. Um, but how, how did you, and, and how do you uh, go about doing that? I think you cast as broad a net as possible. And what, what I advise a number of younger announcers, and I, I try to take the time and respond to everybody who writes or calls because people did that for me and still do that for me. I'm nowhere near a finished product as an announcer or as a human being, and I, I try to do that. I think you have to be sincere. Uh, I, I think you just reach out to as many people as possible. I think you always present yourself in an honest way. Uh, and, and my honest attempts at doing it most of the time were grounded in just trying to get better. It wasn't about getting the next job per se. It was about becoming a better version of myself. And I would ask them, hey, here's a copy of a, uh, a highlight reel that I had, or here's a half inning that I did, or here's uh, my resume. I'd really appreciate your feedback. And I, I always wrote the people that I respected that I liked the announcers and decision makers that were involved in projects that I enjoyed as a fan, even more than as an announcer. And when you come at people with sincerity and with the ask for help, most people are good people and most people can detect that sincerity. And most people will help you because most of us get help at some point. Uh, timing is key. And sometimes it worked out greatly in my favor. Sometimes it did not work out very well at all. But I think as long as you continue to reach out to people and you, you're not looking to use them to leverage for a job, you're, you're looking for their advice on how to improve. 
you're number one going to get better because you're listening to advice of people that you respect that are more grounded in the industry, that have more experience, that have more success, that have already been taught some of these lessons by others. And then by osmosis over time, the more you do that, you grow your own reputation. Then people know, well, hey, John's a good guy. I, hey, you know what? John did get better. I listened to his cut this year versus the cut from two years ago, and I heard an improvement. I, I heard this job might be open. You know, the next time that John calls, I might wind up mentioning it to him. Uh, but the key for the younger announcer is you always have to remember it's on you to maintain those relationships. It's on you to call and email and follow up and to find that right line. You don't want to be a pest. You don't want to be calling and emailing people every month when they're already deluged with their job and, and other responsibilities. But you don't want to do it every three years because there's no relationship. You're contacting someone every three years. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think as long as you do it in a place that's rooted in truth and in just trying to connect, that the other stuff kind of takes care of itself. Um, I do believe you need to always be looking uh, if you want to advance from wherever your respective current spot is. If you're not satiated with your current spot, you want more. You should be on the lookout. You should be scouring message boards for jobs. You should be having conversations with your peers in the community and asking them what they're hearing. Um, but at the same time, I feel like the jobs ultimately actually come in a far more almost serendipitous nature while you're pursuing out in, you know, to, to your left, all of a sudden from your right, this just clocks on by. But I think what clocks on by doesn't happen unless you're doing that other search. Let me ask you about the uh, the the product in and of itself, if we can move in that direction too. Um, start blank slate with me. Uh, what is what's what's John Sadak's goal when you sit down and put a headset on? Um, how would you describe what you want what you want to get out of a broadcast and what you want people to get out of a broadcast when they listen? Well, I think they're completely you know in line with each other. The the whole point of the broadcast is the experience of the viewer or the listener. You know, my personal perspective or enjoyment out of it, that can be a secondary plus for me, but it's relatively moot to the, the whole uh, thesis of, of the broadcast. With that in mind, I, I think a broadcaster in today's world has to be informative. Uh, you've got to give the nuts and bolts, which are different with each respective medium and sport. You know, on radio, it's far more time and score driven. That's by far and away the most important thing in, in all of radio play-by-play. -play. Uh, on television, it's, it's more accenting, uh, captioning with purpose and adding in other detail and fleshing out some of the humanity that's involved that you try to do on radio, but time doesn't necessarily afford, in, in, particularly in sports like basketball and hockey and, and even football to a certain degree. Uh, and you want to entertain. You want to be exciting. You, you want to rise to the occasion. You want your call to kind of match the, the flow of the game. If you can imagine a, a, a line graph going along with the game's big moments and more mundane moments, your call should be commensurately moving with that. And that doesn't mean turning into a giant screamer that's unintelligible. It just means lifting your energy level. And I, I think that's something that's, that's very important. You want the listener or viewer that might be somewhat disengaged, not quite paying as much attention 
to be able to tell from your call, this is a moment you need to pay attention. If you care about this game, if you have it on for a reason, by intonation, by description, by volume, by speed, by pace, this is a big moment. You mentioned earlier uh, one of the things you said in your in your very, I think your very first answer. Uh, you talked about being at the game, and you said you have to react in that moment. Um, whatever you say is out there. Uh, how do you? This is a broad question. I don't even know the way to attack it answer wise, but I'll, I'll I'll still ask it. Um, how do you do that? And um, how do you do it and and get comfortable so that you know it's it's right? Because I think we've all had those moments where. Um, something doesn't come out exactly right or you say something and you wish you would have did it differently. Um, but there, how long did it, what was the process like for you to just get to the point where you feel like it's just going to come out and it, it may not be a hundred percent right, but at the end of the day, the whole broadcast you feel like was acceptable. I don't know that you ever get to that point. <laughs> <laughs> I think all of us, there's, there's, always a series of moments from every broadcast we do that if you're critically listening back to yourself as all announcers should regardless of how long you've been doing it or how good you are that doesn't mean every word of every broadcast but to a certain extent you should be listening and self-critiquing there are going to be moments where you're going to listen back and say you know what that was better than i thought it was and there are going to be moments where you're going to say that was terrible that was not on point this is how i should have handled that moment i think that's okay in many ways i think that's part of what makes this fun in perpetuity it's this moby dick like search for the perfect broadcast <laughs> that is impossible you can't achieve it it doesn't exist because it's a mutable thing. It's different to every person. It's all subjective. So it's this constant search that you can never quite quench a thirst for, but it's a lot of fun to try to do so. Um, but to get more comfortable, to be better at getting it closer to right most of the time, you just need reps. You need a lot of reps. Do games. The only way you get better as an announcer is by doing games. Now, the catch-22 of the industry is that's not necessarily how you get jobs. You get jobs by having relationships with people. But you get better as a broadcaster by doing games. And in an ideal world, you find whatever marriage you need for your skill set and, and your extension of connections within the industry to balance those two out. Because the best broadcaster doesn't always get the job, but the job also doesn't always go to the best broadcaster. And what you want to do is make yourself as good an announcer as possible so when you do get the job, because you will eventually, you're ready for it. You're, you're not overwhelmed by it. You have enough repetitions built in that you can perform on that stage. The interesting, uh, in that vein, like uh, a lot of times, and I feel like personally for me, when I start listening back to games now, I'm trying to listen back for the like the entirety of a broadcast. I, when you're in college, particularly, and when I first got out of college, it was always like I need to have a resume inning, or like these four minutes need to be great. Like this this four minute media timeout in a basketball game needs to be great because I need to send that to somebody. And then you graduate onto like I want to have a good quarter or I want to have a good half. And 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 I think I'm at, like personally, I'm at the point now where I want I feel like I want to take a step back from a game and say like that game I feel good about. Um, 
are there still moments for you where like you'll take a whole game and say, I feel pretty good about that, but if I sent it to somebody, I'm deathly afraid they would click to 1640 left in the second and they're going to think I'm an idiot. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, I think all of us. And, are, and is that just an, it, you it, have to accept that. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. Um, if, if you're truly being honest about yourself, you're always going to do that. I, I don't care how great anybody is. Uh, I, I feel that most of us, no matter what kind of a face most of us might put on, if you're really being honest with yourself, we are all our own worst critics because we know our own weaknesses. I know where I struggle. I know where my greatest fallacies are. So when I go and listen back to a game, that's exactly what I'm looking for, and <laughs> I'm going to find them. Because when you speak extemporaneously for two to four hours at a time, you're going to say something stupid in four hours. You're going to. You're going to give a number wrong, and the average listener will probably not notice it, but you will. And other broadcasters might. I, I think we have a different ear than what the average person does. And some decision-makers have ears along those same lines. Yeah. Uh, so there's a reason for that paranoia, particularly in the early stage of your career, because it's so hard to crack the first job. And then it's very hard to crack the second job. And it's a little easier and progressively as you move up. I find, I think that it, it actually gets easier to a point And then you reach another level. And at that, that other level, the opportunities are so slim the competition is so fierce, and there are a lot of really good announcers. A lot. I, I, I feel like while the opportunities have exploded because of the different mediums that exist and how many entities, you know, sports team-wise, collegiate, high school, professional, that are getting coverage today that had never had coverage even 15, 20 years ago, there are way more qualified announcers today than ever before. Um, what do you listen back for? You mentioned listening back. Uh, how much do you listen to, and and what perks your ear at, at I guess at this moment? It, it, it depends upon the sport, the time of year. In baseball, which is every day, I will listen to at least an inning or two from every game. Uh, sometimes whole games. It depends upon what I have going on in that day. But if I'm on the treadmill for you know an hour. And then I know I'm going to be going for a walk later to the ballpark and I'll be working on my game notes. I might listen to the whole game, but I make sure I listen to at least an inning or two. Uh, and I listen for a little bit of everything. I, I listen for time and score. Uh, I, I'm constantly self-critical on the radio about that. I listen for the repetition of turns of phrase. Am I using any word or series of words as a crutch or too frequently? Uh, am I painting a word picture that's in too distinctively repetitious a manner, even if I'm using different words, but it's basically the same thing. It's just take this synonym in and insert it in this spot. Uh, I'm listening for my pacing. I'm listening for my feel, uh, baseball wise, avoiding stories with two outs. Am I getting to the entirety of what I wanted to get to? Uh, I'm listening for the balance between what's going on in the game versus some other detail. 
and am I allowing the detail to supersede the game, or is the game at a more you know mundane, banal point of the game not getting accented enough by other interesting information? Uh, was I prepared in a certain moment to react in the way that I should, granted historical perspective or a trend, or am I giving it more on the back end because I wasn't quite ready? Uh, TV-wise, uh, where I deal with a lot more partners and where the analyst is the star, if TV is an analyst-driven medium, we are just pivot point guards setting them up, uh, if you're doing TV right, in my opinion. Am I listening to my analyst? Uh, when I go back and watch games, sometimes I am reacting well, and sometimes, John, the producer might have been in your ear there, but you didn't hear what your partner just said. You, you should have gone in this direction. Yeah. He was trying to guide the ship that way. Uh, no, I, I listen for that quite a bit as well. Storytelling-wise, uh, how do you – this goes TV, and, and it's a baseball particular thing, but also on TV in general because you've just got more time um, – to you, what's the right way to tell a story? Well, I think it has to mesh with the game. I think the game is always the star. The game is what is driving a radio, a TV, uh, a football, baseball, basketball. It doesn't matter. If anybody's watching the game, they have an interest in the game. Now, it might be specific to a certain player or a coach or a broadcaster, but they're they're watching the game. So I think you need to try to find a way that you sweep the story in and that while it's being fleshed out and also upon its exit, it is enhancing the game viewing experience. Uh, so you need to adjust as the game dictates. You, and to me, that's where Vince Scully is the greatest of all time. Baseball is the sport where storytelling can be used at its greatest height. And his feel for when to start a story, how to adjust the story on the fly, and how to put a bow on it to where it seems like it reached its natural resolution within the confine of that inning and its conclusion is so hard. I don't think the average person, other broadcasters, yes, the average person doesn't get it. When Vince Scully starts a story, that story could wind up being 18 minutes. It could be two minutes. It could be seven minutes. And it doesn't matter. He finds a way to build to a climax and to give a resolution within whatever time the game dictates is afforded. And he makes sure that the game doesn't get overridden by the storytelling. It's only enhanced by it. There is an art to that that is, is feel and instinctual. And I can't claim to be anywhere near his neighborhood. I don't know that anybody ever can. That's where he is the master, and we're all just trying to create some shadow version of that. What's the right way into storytelling? Um, you know, Benetti used to always point out to me, especially when we worked together, because I was god-awful then, um, you know, don't, don't say, I've got a story, here's a guy, he's playing well, we're going to get into it. You've got to have an easy transition. Um, how do you find and create that easy transition? And, and, and I know you, you just talked about you know it's got to fit with the flow of the game, uh, but how do you get from point A to point B and do it smoothly uh, 
so that it's not just, all right, uh, you know, uh, Jake Skoll leading off the eighth inning. He's playing well. I've got a great anecdote on him. Eighth inning was a bad choice. Fourth inning. Um, we're going to go this route. We're going to get into this. Um, but I don't want it to be just I'm doing it for the sake of doing it. Uh, what's the way that you found to to uh, properly uh, drive your way down that street? I don't know that there is a way. I don't think you cookie cutter it in any one fashion. I don't think you have a particular opening line or anything of that ilk. <laughs> uh, I think you should know your stories, your potential stories going into a game. And the well-prepared broadcast. On TV, I would probably have uh, 30 to 40 stories minimum going into every game that we could get to at some point, knowing we're probably only going to use about three to five of them Mm -hmm. because the game is going to say when that moment fits best. Uh, And I think you just react organically to it. What I like to do and it's not specific to me, I, I stole this idea from a number of other announcers, is on my board, I will always have either trigger words for me to the story, pieces of stories, and I'll use different forms of highlighter or underline or bolding to remind me, essentially, in the moment when number 18 has a big play or becomes a focal point in some way or uh, is involved in a series that's reminiscent of something, it's a trigger. And what I like to do as the game goes on is cross off some of the stories as we tell them so I know, well, we can go back and, and as a reminder about something, but we're not going to launch into that whole story. And then as the game goes on, you start crossing things out, it gives a reminder to you, all right, well, if it fits, here are some other stories that are remaining that we could get to. Uh, the, the trick to it more so, I would say, I, I think the transitioning of getting into the story is something that you either have or you don't. You, you, you're a storyteller or you're not, sure. and you adjust to that moment. I think the trick that you learn more by repetition as an announcer, though, is you don't have to use everything that you prepared. Yeah. That's the biggest mistake that I hear in most young announcers that are well-prepared, and that's a great thing but they want to show you how well-prepared they are, and they're going to read all 112 things they have, even though they don't fit the moment at all. Yeah. Um, do you like radio or television better? Uh, I, I know one allows for certainly better storytelling, which can sometimes be more fun, um, but uh, other factors that get into that. Uh, do, do you have a preference, one or the other? I love both. Uh, it depends upon the sport. It depends upon the type of game in terms of how intense it is. Um, I, I think the greatest test of an announcer is baseball on the radio uh, because of the plain old 15 minutes ball and play action and the rest is you with a completely blank canvas. I, I think that's a, an incredible challenge and a great test and it's every day. Uh, at the same time, I think for me, I think I'm best at basketball on both TV and radio. And I would say that basketball on the radio is probably my best sport. I think it's what I, what comes most naturally. I I don't have to coach myself nearly as much, you know, each game I can kind of just call the game. Um, 
there's it's hard to match football in its one game a week intensity yeah. and uh and football on the radio versus tv are, are wildly different um in the play-by-play person's role how much you should be speaking and the types of details that you're giving uh and i love i love both i mean right now i'm fortunate enough to do the nfl on radio which is an incredible joy and a ton of fun uh, but getting to work on TV where it's a communal effort and I, I like working as a team. Um, and I, I never played football at a high level. So I feel like being in a television analyst driven medium on TV uh, probably has a lot more football specific validity when you can lean on somebody who played at a very high level and has a very high football IQ. Uh, it's something that I try to pick their brains about, you know, even off broadcast all the time because I, I want to grow my knowledge of, of the sport. Uh, but I, I think it really varies. It depends upon the sport, depends upon the time of year. I love both uh, for different reasons. You uh, you mentioned doing NFL on radio, uh, and I know that uh, – and, and you, you've talked about this as we've even been talking here um, – just kind of the growth – I guess even recently for you too, with the the amount of things you've been able to do in Westwood, um, and you know doing some stuff with CBS and all of uh, the other outlets that you've you've been able to work with over the last couple of years. Um, what's been the biggest growth in you as a broadcaster? I mean, technically speaking, uh, the things that you've noticed most over the last couple of years. Um, that's that's made you feel, even if it's just internal that like these are the things I've done that I feel like I've gotten myself to a level where I can broadcast at this level, if that makes sense. These are the uh, most well, important I'm a things. Terribly, I'm a terribly insecure person that's always full of self-doubt and anxiety, so yeah. I don't know if I quite ever get to that point. <laughs> um, but I, I, I do think that my preparation has gotten a lot better. I think I've found my path, which is different with each sport and each medium, but I, I know what I need to do to feel like I'm ready to do the game. And when I started doing it, it felt like each year I was growing and learning and doing something different. And I, I still do. I still tweak my boards every year. I'll still make subtle changes, but they're, they're more subtle changes. I, I now know, all right, here are the 80 things in advance of this game this week that I need to make sure are done so that I feel like I'm ready and everything around the broadcast is as prepared as possible to be ready for what the game might throw at us. Uh, I, I would say that's where I think the, the experience of time, and that's not so much specific to level. I, I don't think it's because I'm doing games for Westwood One or CBS. I think it would have been true if I were doing games still for uh, Delaware and Princeton and the Ivy Network and NCAA.com and Division II games for the Sports Fever Television Network, which gave me my start TV. I think I would have arrived at a lot of the same uh, methods. It, it just would have been at a different level. But I think it's the repetition that gets you there. When do you feel like you're prepared? Uh, is there like is because? And I only ask that because like I feel like I will have weeks for football where I know I've prepared less but I feel like I'm prepared more. And I don't know if that's the old less is more. Like I've, I've just read so much and I've, I, I feel like I've done too much that there's just so much going on that I don't have it organized. Or sometimes where I dial it back a little bit, I feel better. 
Um, is there a spot for you where you can sit back on a, I don't know, for college football on a Friday night and say, I feel good going into this one tomorrow? Uh, yeah, I think the, the methods that I have in place to get myself ready, I feel that way. At, at the same time, the research never ends. I mean, I, I have you know, Google alerts set up. I'm on Twitter. I'm talking to people at the stadium when I arrive. Yeah. I'm, I'm still always looking to add more information. Uh, I'm texting SIDs during the game. Uh, I'm looking up information and background on people. I, I'm doing that throughout the entirety of the game. I, I had a game this weekend, uh, Western Michigan and Akron, and Western Michigan's running back wound up uh, with a, an incredible day, one of the greatest rushing performances in program history, and uh, set the single-game yardage mark. And I had to look up during the game the, the person that he passed on their all-time list mm. because I didn't know the name. It played decades before I was even born. <laughs> and then I learned... Well, he's a CFL most outstanding player. He won a Grey Cup. He had a very decorated collegiate career. It wasn't just one game. Well, I'm doing that research on my phone while I'm on the air because who would have thought that they'd wind up with a guy running for nearly 300 yards today? Yeah. Um, how can people find you? How can people uh, catch John Sedak in action? Uh, I would say Twitter is the, the best source. It's at John Sedak, all one word, J-O-H-N. S A D A K. Um, and what? Uh, what? How can they hear you? Like, what's the? Is there a? What's the quick summary of, of places you're at nowadays? Uh, most NFL Sundays, I'm on Westwood One Radio, uh, which you can get through the NFL Game Pass uh, product, which is an outstanding product, uh, or any one of the number of stations that air the games throughout the country. WestwoodOneSports.com Station Finder. Uh, I work Sunday afternoon games. Uh, CBS Sports Network, on most Saturdays, I'm doing a collegiate game and an occasional Friday or Thursday. I work all the Navy home games and then a hodgepodge of American, MAC, Conference USA, uh, pretty much all of CBS's properties at one point or another. Uh, <laughs> Basketball-wise, I work for the same two entities. And then uh, in the baseball season, I'm with the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders, the Yankees AAA team. Uh, and all the broadcast stream online to MILB.com. John Sadak, our guest on Play-By-Play cast this week. Uh, some really good stuff toward the end of that conversation, I thought, when it came to storytelling. Uh, being a good storyteller, weaving good stories, uh, doing it effectively, efficiently, getting your point across um, the best way possible when it comes to storytelling, which... You know, at the end of the day, that's that's what we all do. We are all storytellers. Uh, the game, first and foremost, but the characters within the game, uh, equally as important. What's well, a book if you don't know who any of the characters are? The game is the book. Uh, your, your storytelling, though, is your character development um, throughout the chapters of said game. So, uh, interesting to dive into that stuff with John Sadak and, and so much more. And uh, certainly appreciate his joining us here. If you have a chance to catch him, Westwood One Radio or CBS TV um, do, because uh, I think watching him and listening to him uh, in person certainly um, can make you a better broadcaster. And you got 140 some odd chances to do that over the summer, too, uh, through MILB.com. Uh, a lot of other really good guests coming up over the next few weeks, and we talk about telling stories in baseball. We're going to have a chance to talk a lot about that. Uh, Greg Brown of the Pittsburgh Pirates is going to be coming on in the next couple of weeks. 
Um, I know Brownie for a couple of uh, years since I worked back in Bradenton and a uh, really good dude. So we'll get him on the podcast the next few weeks. And uh, next week is Jason Knapp. From CBS Sports Network, from the Pac-12 Networks, from NBC's Olympic coverage. I I had said for so long I wanted to get somebody on this podcast who did the NBC Olympics. And uh, Jason Knapp did the NBC Olympics. We're going to talk a lot. It's going to be kind of an interesting podcast next week because we've so much talked baseball, basketball, football, the most common sports to do. Um, But when Jason comes on next week, we're going to talk a little bit of wrestling, play-by-play. Uh, the, the amateur stuff, not the, not the, not that much wrestling, but, uh, the amateur wrestling. We'll get into all of that with Jason Knapp. We'll also talk volleyball play by play. So we take a a little bit of an Olympic sports route next week. And I think it's a, a different look and a really informative look. So a lot of cool things coming up here on play by play cast over the next couple of weeks. Thank you as always for clicking subscribe or download. Hey, if you like the podcast, I know we've talked about leaving a rating for it, things of that nature. Uh, if you like the podcast, tell a friend about it. Um, help us grow a little bit. Uh, certainly the, the more people that listen, uh, the better for this podcast. So if you're listening and you enjoy it, uh, tweet about it. Uh, tell your friend, tell somebody in your league, uh, tell the guy who uh, you're, you're, you're broadcasting a game against. You know, hey, I've been listening to this play-by-play cast. Let them know you're listening. Uh, I certainly would appreciate it. Anyway, we'll talk to you next week. Jason Knapp will be our guest here on Play-by-Play Cast. This week for John Sadak, thank you again so much for joining us on the podcast. And thank you as well for clicking download or subscribe to Play the Music, which is our go-home cue to get up on out here. Until next week, we say so long. Yeah.